Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson. Many of us have been following the information that's been emerging in the last two weeks about Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, and the many connections she had to the folks perpetrating the January 6th insurrection. Those links go back longer and are a lot deeper than have even been reported in the mainstream press as they've been talking about this story. I went on the air with legendary West Virginia radio broadcaster Howard Monroe on his show to talk about the Ginny Thomas story and what it means, especially for the role of the Supreme Court and the effort to overturn the 2020 election. We also snuck in a little discussion of congressional corruption and the return of earmarks. We've always known that Clarence Thomas's wife was a conservative activist. I mean, that's been quite well known. I guess I didn't realize how radical, is that the right word to use? I didn't realize how much of a conservative activist she was until some of these recent emails that she sent to Trump administration folks during and around January 6th came out. What's your take on all that? I think you're spot on, and in many ways, since these text messages came to light, there were a series of 29 that were revealed going to then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. It's it's brought to light just how much is going on here and perhaps how deep all of this truly goes. So, I I mean, I I think most listeners are probably at least somewhat familiar with what was in these text messages. Ginny Thomas, the, the wife of... Clarence Thomas uh, is writing things to Mark Meadows. So this is the wife of a Supreme Court justice writing to the White House chief of staff. Things like Biden and the left are attempting the greatest heist in our history. And he is writing back. This is an undercovered aspect of this in apocalyptic biblical terms. He's writing back with capitalization all over the place. This is a fight of good versus evil. Evil always looks like the victor until the king of kings triumphs. Do not grow weary in well-doing. The fight continues. I've staked my career on it. So that in itself is troubling. But I think there are, I think there are bigger issues going on here. And there, there are three points I would raise about all of this. The first is that we just don't know what we don't know. So we've seen these 29 text messages. And there are little breadcrumbs that have also come to light, but haven't been well connected in the last two weeks. So, for example, way back when, the Washington Post had revealed that Jenny Thomas had been on a private email listserv. That's still a thing, apparently, email listservs, called Thomas Clerk World, which includes former law clerks of Justice Clarence Thomas's. There is something like 120 people on that. It's been characterized in an article by Jane Mayer in in The New Yorker by a a highly placed legal analyst as this is an elite right-wing commando movement, all right? These are highly placed former law clerks throughout the legal world of, of Justice Thomas, and she, during that time frame, was agitating in the same terms as she was in these private text messages. And so she's essentially seeding the case for overturning the election to highly placed members of the judiciary and the legal establishment. We know that she posted on Facebook. We know she attended the January 6th rally. We know because of these text messages that she was emailing with Jared Kushner. And she had other contacts with 
people in the legal movement going on to try to overturn the election. And so the question becomes, the first question for me becomes, well, what don't we know? Because she also is communicating in these text messages in biblical terms. She is seeing this as the fight for America, the fight for saving Trump is essentially the fight of good versus evil. She believes right-wing conspiracy theories that Joe Biden and other Democrats are about to be rounded up and put on a barge outside Gitmo. And so this it would boggle the mind to believe that these text messages and emails and communications on listservs were all that was going on. And we don't know what else was going on. And I have more to say about that, but I should stop there because that all of this in itself is pretty disturbing. Does it – should Clarence Thomas recuse himself from any cases involving January 6th because of this? Yes. He should, and it's it's actually kind of – the cat is sort of out of the bag. There's, so first of all, the simple legal answer to your question is that there is an existing U.S. statute, 28 U.S.C. Section 455 – I had to look this up. I didn't know this offhand, believe me that, – that says that justices have to disqualify themselves from any proceedings in which their impartiality might reasonably be questioned. And we know from the text messages that Ginny Thomas refers to a conversation with her best friend, which is the term that, you know, she uses for Clarence, for her husband. And we know from previous testimony from friends of theirs that they they speak. He she is the only person that he listens to, according to reporting from close friends of theirs. They talk all the time. And so, yes, under a plain reading of existing statute, he should recuse himself. The problem oh, but I hear a but I hear a but here coming, Matt. I hear a but well, coming. Yes, the problem is that he's already participated in two cases related to the 2020 election. And there's a third case, Eastman versus Thompson, that is on its way to him. And there's no indication that he's going to do this. The issue for me, though, is I, I think this isn't just about January 6th. Now, that's sort of like, how else, how, how was the play, Mrs. Lincoln? Like, I mean, what else could there be? But I think there's a deeper problem going on here because, as you say, Ginny Thomas has been involved in right-wing activism as a blanket term for a long time. But there are all kinds of very strange connections going on that – for me, raise the question of, should Justice Thomas even be on the court? Because it certainly seems like there's sort of an inside man on the court right now. So, for example, Jenny Thomas has served on the advisory board of a group called Turning Point USA, which the, the founder of that group has boasted of sending busloads of protesters for the January 6th rally. Okay. Well, she's also... In 2019, she announced a political project called Crowdsourcers. One of her four partners is the founder of Project Veritas, James O'Keefe. That's that group that shows up and tries to record people at, like, the New York Times or politicians, and then they edit the videos to make them look bad. Well, they have petitioned the Supreme Court on, on, a, on an issue before the court. There's another foundation she's involved with, also with a petition before the court. And so she's already indirectly involved 
in cases before the Supreme Court. We also know that she created something called that she calls the Impact Awards. In 2019, she gave an Impact Award to Mark Meadows, of all people. And Meadows, in accepting the award, said, and I'm quoting here, Ginny was talking about how we team up. We actually have teamed up. And I'm going to give you something you won't hear anywhere else. We worked through the first five days of the impeachment hearings. So we that seems to indicate that Ginny Thomas, wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, is working with the administration as part of the impeachment, which may end up before the Supreme Court. This is a pattern that's been going back for years, and there are ties here between her and the conservative establishment that are incredibly deep and that involve multiple issues that are coming before the court. So my point here is this. We know what we know, and the more we find out, the more we realize just how close we came in the weeks leading up to January 6th and on January 6th itself to the end of American democracy. That's that's no longer hyperbole. There's no exaggeration in this. We came. It was, but you're, you, we, we certainly are learning it more and more now. Exactly. Will the January 6th commission, should they, they should call Ginny Thomas, I would think, will they? They should. They probably will. They'll probably end up in a whole host of issues. I mean, the, the problem is that this is such a clash of politics versus substance, and we've seen this over and over again as we deal with the fallout of having elected Donald Trump, is that you can make a very compelling argument. Indeed, we've heard this argument with both impeachments of Donald Trump, that if you do not take the legal step, the constitutional step of trying to hold accountable or at least sanction in some way this kind of behavior, then you allow it and invite it in the future. And so many people passionately argue that it's incredibly dangerous to let this kind of thing go by without at least attempting the legal route, which is why the January 6th committee will probably try to drag Jenny Thomas in front of it. On the other hand, we've seen a lot in the last couple of weeks come out about, for example, it was reported that behind the scenes, President Biden is frustrated with Attorney General Merrick Garland for not pursuing a prosecution of Trump and his followers. And he believes that Trump should be prosecuted. Well, that raises a whole bunch of questions, too, because as I was saying on my roundtable show a couple of days ago, right now, the keys to the car of government are held by relatively sane, rational people with integrity. I don't know of many people out there who question Merrick Garland's integrity. And Joe Biden may be many things, but he's not some kind of um, raging ideologue or corrupt figure. Yet, and yet, and yet, in 2025, the keys to the car may go back to Donald Trump. They may go back to his cabal of people who could not care less about the Constitution, which we now know because of the Eastman memo and everything that's come to light about January 6th. And so if we set the precedent of prosecuting the former president, the top layers of his administration, we may be doing it for the best of reasons, we may be doing it for the purpose that I outlined a moment ago of sanctioning the kinds of illegal behavior they were engaging in. 
But there's no guarantee that a future administration and a future Justice Department would have pure motives. And they might simply, as a matter of course and political retribution, prosecute everyone currently serving in this administration. And that's another way that American democracy completely unravels. I'm not sure that there's a good answer to this. You probably then did not hear me talk about this story, but I actually would like to get your take on it because it involves congressional staffers. West Virginia Congressman Alex Mooney is under a second ethics investigation, according to Roll Call magazine, for, and I will quote from the letter that was sent to his office, potential misuse of congressional or campaign funds or resources, including misuse of congressional staff time for personal errands, campaign work, or other unofficial purposes. You were a campaign staffer. Did you ever have to run personal errands? Were you ever asked to do something that made you, made you a little bit anxious about whether it was the right thing to do? Oh, this one's really tricky because you are not allowed to use your congressional staff to do personal errands. On the other hand, congressional staffers do personal work for their bosses and their spouses all the time. It's it's just part of the culture. If your boss says, oh, hey, someone's got to get my dry cleaning because I need to have a suit to wear to this event, then, of course, the staff is going to make sure that gets done because that's important. Is that official business? No. So when I hear of a case like this, I, I tend to think context is everything because there are definitely situations where you have a, a member of Congress who truly does treat her or his staff like like servants and are inappropriately imposing on their time and resources. It just gets it's a very tricky dividing line, and it I think context is everything in cases like this. Let me give you this article in, in roll call gives a couple of examples that were apparently listed in this ethics complaint. Give me your your reaction as a former staffer. A staffer assisted the congressman's wife in inquiring how to obtain her medical license. Another example, a staffer contacted a mine museum in Beckley to obtain information for a school project for one of Mooney's three kids, as well as driving Mooney's children to private events and for errands on behalf of the kids. They all fall into a gray area. So the rule is, first of all, you're not supposed to use official resources that the taxpayers of America are paying for in order to advance your personal interests or especially your interests, right? So what would really be a red flag here is if you're using congressional computers and time in a congressional office to do campaign work. It doesn't sound to me like those red flag issues are are here. Where, again, it kind of falls into that, that sort of gray zone is staffers all the time may be sitting at their desk and they might say, well, for the next few minutes, I'm going to be on lunch break and I'm going to, I'm going to do a few personal errands on my own time. I'm going to use the internet on my own time. And you might be doing a favor for the member of Congress or their spouse or their kids who you might know and like and generally want to help. To me, what would trigger the issue here is, is someone in a position of authority over you telling you that you must do this? Is this an, is this an instruction to you? You would better get this done, or is there an obligation to do this as part of your job? This is the second ethics uh, investigation opened up 
for Alex Mooney. The previous investigation came to the conclusion that Mooney had used campaign donations for personal purchases, trips outside his district, for food, for his personal car, and more. Mooney, Mooney's response to that had been that an example was he had gone to Chick-fil-A and, and, and expensed the meal. I'm intrigued about your perspective on it since you were, you were actually in there as a congressional staffer. All of this stuff is really tricky. It's really hard, given the way the campaign rules are written, what is an expensable thing, what is not, what's kind of done in good faith, what's not. But this sounds like some really low-level stuff. Well, I think, though, the totals have added up quite significantly. I mean, that was a specific example. Mm. Money is accused of spending more than $40,000 uh, on these kinds of, of personal purchases, he has paid the campaign back twelve thousand dollars after the allegations came to light. So it's, uh, as you say, contact is everything, but I also think cumulativeness is everything too. Well, that's a fair point. I mean, if this is, and I, I, I'm, I'm trying to apply a common sense standard. Just to take a step back, what are we trying to achieve with these kinds of rules here? We're trying to prevent politicians from turning their campaign funds and especially their taxpayer funds into a big piggy bank. There's a common sense difference between if you're using taxpayer funds for for your personal benefit, that is a bigger issue to me than if you're using campaign funds. Using campaign funds for your own benefit is not great. but, But to me, there's a big difference there because all you're really doing is dissipating donor funds. I think a lot of the money that donors give to campaigns is is a waste anyway. So to me, that doesn't shock the conscience as much as the idea of, yeah, this is money that we paid in taxes on April 15th, and somehow a member of Congress is lining her pockets with it. That is a bigger problem to me. You're right. Cumulative effect matters. If there's a pattern of behavior, that's something that is recognized under the law, is is a pervasive pattern of behavior. And if you're doing this and and little bits add up and essentially you're funding your lifestyle through your campaign, that is a no-no under the law. You should not be doing that. So once again, I'm going to fall back on context is important here. Are these a series of unconnected, low-level violations? That's sort of one thing. If it does really add up to a a big pattern of behavior and and using your campaign funds as as a slush fund, sort of a horse of a different. Another unexpected issue here, Matt. To your your thoughts as a former congressional staff, it looks like earmarks are back. We now call them, what do they call them, designated? Yeah, congressionally directed spending is is the usual. I mean, I remember, and I'm, I'm guessing you probably were in Congress or not in Congress, but we're a, a staffer uh, in, in, on Capitol Hill, when earmarks were around. Earmarks uh, were something that for a long time everybody loved. It meant bringing money back to your district, to your constituents. And then somewhere along the way that became a bad word. Earmarks became a bad word, and they were cut out. Now they're back again. What do you think? I am one of the few rabid fans of earmarks out there. I think they're good. I'm going to sound like Gordon Gecko here for a second. I think they're good. I think they work. I think they make Congress better. And I, I know I'm kind of in an unpopular place on this. So, yes, you're right. My very first job on Capitol Hill was 
working for the Appropriations Committee. So the way it works in Congress is there are policy committees that you've you've heard of like energy and commerce or or judiciary, and they pass policy. But the way our budget works is that we have kind of a two-step where we set the budget, but then there's a whole other parallel committee that actually spends the money. It's called the Appropriations Committee. That's where all the earmarks happen. Well, that's where most of the earmarks happen. And one of the things I did as a staffer was, as we were passing each of these appropriations bills, at the time there were 13, they may have consolidated down to 12, but you'd go into each of those bills and you'd have requests from members of Congress. They would say, I want $500,000 for the Howard Monroe Broadcasting Museum in Wheeling, West Virginia. And you would you would kind of go down the list. And behind the scenes, the way it really happened was you would sort of discuss on behalf of the members of Congress who, who headed those committees, all right, how much money do we have in here to give to earmarks? How much does this member? And what is sort of their priority of their requests? And we would try to fulfill them. Where I think the whole process got into trouble was it was not our job as staffers to vet these requests. And I think members of Congress were frequently not vetting those requests. And so you got some real clunkers come through. I think one of the famous ones was $25,000 for the parking lot at the Lawrence Welk Museum in somewhere Minnesota. And it, it just created a very rich target list for Republicans to go after as part of the campaign in 2010 to say... Wasn't, wasn't the infamous Bridge to Nowhere an earmark? It was an earmark, although it, was, it went through a slightly different mechanism. But yes, basically it was an earmark. And it was a Bridge to Nowhere. It truly was. So you would get these egregious examples that I think were, were really... They told the wrong story because... 99% of the time, what you really have happening here is something that I think conservatives should be in favor of, which is, I'm going to put this in their terms. Instead of some faceless bureaucrat at a federal agency deciding where your taxpayer dollars go, your elected representative, who you get to vote for, decides where just a tiny portion, a tiny portion of your tax dollars go, way less than 1%. To me, that sounds like a pretty good deal for democracy. It also, speaking of deals, helped deals to get done because it meant that members of Congress had skin in the game for passing bills. There was something that leadership on committees could hold over their heads and say, look, we've got to work together. We need you to vote for this. Nowadays, part of the reason we have congressional gridlock is that you're always better off from a politics standpoint voting no on something. You're always better off it's 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 awfully hard to assemble, especially a bipartisan coalition for something, because you catch all the grief for everything in the bill. At least earmarks gave you a defense of, look, I brought a million dollars home for this bridge in our district, and it's getting people to work every day. And so we've lost some of that. And it's no coincidence in my mind that Congress has gotten more gridlocked after earmarks went away. And I, I think it's it's bad for the process, and it's not so great for democracy either. I, I, I first place, I, I don't know if you're a minority or not, as you said earlier, but I, I also never thought earmarks were a bad thing. I always thought they were a good thing. Of course, West Virginia was 
home of Senator Byrd, who brought the greatest earmarks of all time, you know, home to our state. He is a legend. So, uh, the Iowa County earmarks were, were, were a good thing. They let our elected representatives make some decisions about the direct spending of our money. And I also think exactly what you said. I, I thought about this. The, the, when, when we had earmarks, members of Congress would sit and talk to each other across the aisle even. Hey, Matt, listen, I know you're looking for um, a fishery museum in your area, and I really need to make Monroe happy for his broadcast museum. Can we work out five vote for yours? Can you, will you agree with, I mean, you had to talk, you had to negotiate, and it was for not the common good, but for the individual good, which became the common good, which made, I think, a lot more bipartisanship possible. So I, I think it had, it had value. That's it for Beyond Politics. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you next time.